Well, all, God often sends me words of encouragement uh, in the form of emails or texts from people I've never met. And, uh, you know, maybe they follow our ministry through Not By Works or Plum Creek Chapel and just feel led to reach out for some reason. And one time I received a very timely word from a man who learned of a struggle that at the time my family and I were facing, and he texted me the following. He said, quote, push past what is seen. The enemy is well aware our faith in an unseen God can be weakened by what can be seen. So Satan will manipulate the visible. God will be the victory. Stay strong, my friend. And then he listed 2 Kings 6 at the end of the text. Now, 2 Kings 6 tells the story of Elisha and his servant when they were going up against the Syrians. And in the text, we find out they were surrounded by an unseen army of angels that protected them. Push past what is seen. That word was not only timely at the time, but it was also timeless, it turns out, because struggles and suffering and persecution are frequent uninvited guests in our lives, aren't they? I thought about that advice this past week when at the worst possible time, and I'm not sure there really is ever a convenient time to have an accident, but I carelessly broke my hand trying to remove some ice from our driveway. And, you know, if you've ever had your, your dominant hand disabled, I'm right-handed, uh, boy, you know how hard it can be to function. I mean, even the simplest things, you know, brushing your teeth and tying your shoes, uh, uh, those kinds of things can, can really be a challenge. I think by the time this heals, I'll probably be ambidextrous because I'm being forced to use my, uh, my left hand. And especially when, you know, my work is so dependent on computer, you know, it's, it's hard to type, you know, when you have to use uh, one hand. But I know there are far more significant sufferings than a minor injury uh, that uh, people face. Even in this auditorium right now, people are struggling. There are financial struggles, emotional struggles, relational struggles. There are uh, spiritual struggles. Um, so this was a timely word and a timeless world, a word. And I think that the texter that, that sent me this was spot on. We need to push past, or in a commonly used motivational phrase of our day, power through. Power through the visible trials that we face. We have an unseen enemy, and his name is Satan. And ever since Christ rose from the dead, Satan has been writhing in anger and fury and wrath, seeking to destroy anyone who names the name of Christ as he heads out the door you know he's not done yet god is sovereign we know how the plan ends but right now the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one he's the prince of the power of the air the god of this age and uh, we know that jesus said he comes to steal kill and destroy and so as we continue our walk through the early days of the church we come to a little section it's a big section we're not going to read all of it. I mean, we could spend weeks just on chapters 4 and 5 and take some principles from almost every single verse and section. It's so rich. But in, in outlining the book of Acts, this, these two chapters really kind of come together around 
a common theme. It's the first occurrence of persecution in the early church. So the church is just weeks old, still in its infancy, and we see Satan's first shot across the bow. And of course, it's only going to intensify in the days and months that followed. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we know that Satan is utterly trying to destroy the church because the church is the body of Christ and he wants to destroy Christ. Satan thinks he's the rightful heir to the throne. He, he tried to take the throne in heaven. God said, no way. So he comes to the earth and he's been trying for 6,000 years to destroy the heir to the throne, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Son of David, Jesus Christ uh, himself. By the end of the first century, most of the early Christian leaders were martyred for their faith. And of course, <clears throat> over the last 2,000, 2000 years, we've seen incredible persecution of Christians martyred for their faith. And today, and we've talked about this previously, there are more Christians being martyred in the world, throughout the world today, at this very moment, uh, in 2022, than, than at any other time in church history. You know, the subject of persecution, uh, which is really a subset of suffering, I mean, not all suffering is persecution, but all persecution is definitely suffering, amen? And there's other kinds of suffering, and so the principles we're going to talk about this morning can apply beyond just persecution. But the subject of persecution here in America has really started to come up more and more in conversation over the last couple of years, especially since the rollout of the manufactured pandemic and the medical tyranny that ensued after that. And I wonder if we're ready for that. I mean, we better be because it's kind of already happening. <laughs> in fact, this, the parallels that we're going to read about in this section of Acts this morning with what happened over the last two years in the church and governments across the world dictating what you can say, when you can meet, what you can preach, where you can stand, what you can sing, those kinds of things are really uncanny. But beyond physical persecution for the cause of Christ, there's also a spiritual persecution as Satan takes aim at believers and unleashes the power of hell against us. What does this look like? Well, Satan wants to discourage. He wants to confuse. He wants to cause doubt. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about the incredible miracle at the beautiful gate when the lame man, born lame, was healed. He'd been lame for 40 years, the text tells us. And, and you know, how and what we're going to read about this morning is how the early church and Jewish leaders that were unbelievers responded to that. They didn't like it uh, too much. Uh, but what does it look like to be facing uh, Satan's attacks? He, he wants to he wants to keep the church defeated and powerless. We're not powerless, but that's what he wants us to think. Um, it really doesn't take much examination of the church around us to realize that Satan is alive and well. I mean, let's face it. Um, you've heard me talk before about how, in my best estimation, and that's really all it is, I think, you know, 90% of the church in America is apostate. Uh, someone asked me, what does apostate mean, or what's a good definition of apostate? I just, I think it means falling away from the truth of God's Word. Churches that have abandoned the Bible as the only source of and standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. And I think probably 90% that's the case. Uh, but there's always a remnant. But as we talk about how to power through persecution, let me uh, first kind of 
go back and put this in some context. It's been a couple of weeks and been a lot of distractions and a lot going on. So let's just kind of bring us up to speed. So we're in the early days of the New Testament church. Remember, we started with the, the, the great day of Pentecost sermon that Peter preached and 3,000 souls were saved. And then we spent several weeks talking about what that first church in Jerusalem looked like, what was the model. And then last week, we saw that incredible miracle with Peter and John and the lame man at the beautiful gate. So we're dealing with circa 33 AD, you know, probably by now, May, June, something like that of that year, the church was founded uh, in, uh, in May. So probably the summer, let's say, at the outside. Tension was beginning to build. I remember Luke, who wrote the book of Acts under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us a lot of uh, progress reports, a lot of, uh, you know, things that kind of explain uh, you know, the, the results, remember 3,000 were saved, then 5,000, then the church grew and then expanded, and eventually he's going to talk about how the church multiplied. So this wasn't just a, a blip. Things were beginning to sink in. People were getting saved all over the place as the gospel went forth. And the unbelieving Jewish leaders, not to mention the Roman leaders, were getting a little antsy. Um, the apostles in the early days of the church had a incredible sense of duty and calling they understood that their savior who they had walked with and talked with and sat with and learned from for three and a half years that everything he said was true and coming true just like he said it would and they still looked for him to return we saw that in chapter three when they were still expecting his soon return they didn't know it was going to last two thousand years so far uh, but as the church grew and expanded their sense of duty also became more significant and more real and and uh and and then of course you know the persecution began christ's mission conflicted with the government's mandate sound familiar <laughs> christ's mission conflicted with the government's mandate and how would the apostles respond what would they do well their faith was strong i mean this is the man whom they walked with and talked with they saw him after he resurrected. They understood resurrection power, and they understood their role that they had to play. Jesus had outlined it for them quite well in the upper room the night that he was betrayed. And so they responded as we might expect. But I think the question for us from an applicational standpoint is, how are we going to respond? How can we power through persecution? And I think there's two reasons this is very important. Number one, because as I alluded to, it's very possible, even likely, that we and our children will face physical persecution in our lifetimes, the way things are heading. We know that's happening already. You know, there have been preachers in America in the last year who have been pulled from the pulpit, put in handcuffs, and put in a car for preaching the Word of God and leading hymns out in the open air, by the way, in the church parking lot even, not even in the building. <laughs> and yet that was a no-no. You don't get to gather together as a church in America out under the open sky and lead your church in hymns, not without being arrested. And of course, in other countries, that was pretty isolated around here, around America. It happened a few times. Other parts of the world, it was normal. It was the new normal. But second reason I think this is important is because in the spiritual realm, Satan's attacks are already occurring at unprecedented rates. We know that the spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well. We know that deception is getting worse and worse, 2 Timothy 3.13, 1 John 4.13. Uh, 
So the, the, the spiritual battle that is going on where Satan is coming to steal, kill, and destroy is intensifying. And that, therefore, persecution and suffering on a personal level are, are getting more intense, even if you're not being hauled off to prison the way Peter and John were. So I'd like to read our passage. We're going to read just selected portions of it. It's obviously a big section. Uh, I encourage you, though, to read all of chapter 4 and 5 just to get the flow of thought as we move on beyond this in the coming uh, weeks. But let's take a look at uh, this, uh, this section here in, uh, first, in uh, Acts chapter 4. So he begins, Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests... The captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now that's what Peter preached in chapter 2 in Jerusalem. That's what he, at the, on the day of Pentecost, that's what he preached in chapter 3 in response to the, you know, how did this lame man get healed? healed? Resurrection life, that Jesus is the life giver. He defeated death, hell, and the grave when he rose uh, from the dead. And then he goes on, and they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already uh, evening. However, now listen, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So here's another one of those progress reports where Luke, the historian, as he's describing the advancement of the church in the early days, gives us a report on, yeah, now, there, now there's 5,000 people, not just uh, 3,000. And then he goes on, And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? And uh, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, then let it be made known to you all, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by your builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. He's quoting there, from um, Psalm 118, verse 22, that messianic uh, psalm. And then he goes on and says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. So this is what troubled the early religious leaders, is they had a good thing going. You know, they... They had a system. They, it, was, it was partially about money, uh, you know, for the money changers. Remember, Jesus had some choice words for them. It was about their rituals and sacrifices. And the message of salvation in Christ is you don't need any of that. You just need Jesus. <laughs> you just need to know the Lord Jesus. You know, in a little bit, we're going to celebrate, as we do every third Sunday of the month, the Lord's Supper. And if anything pictures the unhindered access that we can have to God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, uh, more clearly, it's, it's the Lord's Supper. Couldn't be uh, more clear. There's a, a great song by a, 
contemporary Christian artist from a couple decades ago, but it's called Just Come In, and it goes like this. What do I see you dragging up here? Is that for your atoning? Now, you got to picture the first century bringing their lambs and their turtle doves and whatever they were bringing. What, what do I see you dragging up here? Is that for your atoning? I wish you would just come in. Just leave that right there. Love does not care. Just come in. Lay your heart right here. You should never fear. You think you've crossed some sacred line and now I will ignore you. But if you'll look up, you'll find my heart is still toward you. I will forgive you no matter what you've done. No matter how many times you turn and run. I love you. I wish you'd just come. Another song puts it this way. Come to the table that he's prepared for you. The bread of forgiveness, the wine of release. Come to the table and sit down beside him. I mean, this notion was what really stunned the crowds that would listen to Jesus speak for three and a half years. That he would get down and mingle with the harlots and the tax collectors. That he would have dinner with the unclean Gentiles. Come to the table and sit down beside him. The Savior wants you to join in the feast. Come to the table and see in his eyes the love that the Father has spoken. And know you are welcome, whatever your crime, for every commandment you've broken. For he's come to love you and not to condemn. He offers a pardon of peace. If you'll come to the table, you'll feel in your heart the greatest forgiveness, the greatest release. Come to the table and taste of the glory. Savor the sorrow. He's dying tomorrow. Remember, he gave the Lord's Supper, instituted it the very night he was betrayed. By the next day, he was laid in the tomb. The hand that is breaking the bread soon will be broken. And here at the table sit those who have loved him. One is a traitor and one will deny. But he's lived his life for them all. And for all, he'll be crucified Luke goes on to say now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus I mean I wonder how many people recognize that we've been with Jesus See, it's going to be more and more important that we really get to know our Savior like never before. Now, if you've trusted in Him and Him alone as your only hope of salvation, then you're part of the family of God. You're born again. That issue was settled. We talked about that two weeks ago. When we talked about assurance. But there needs to be a closeness, an intimacy as we head into these uncharted waters, at least as Christians in America. And that's why Jesus told the disciples in that famous upper room that we've talked about that they need to abide in Christ. They were already saved, but they needed to remain close to him, be in close fellowship with him, stick with him. And so as I kind of read through this section, uh, I see a few principles, nothing particularly profound, that jump off the page at me for responding to persecution. And so I'd like to just, you know, mention some of these as we work our way through the rest of this historical account. Just some principles uh, to keep in mind. Uh, think about all that Peter and John were facing, th th having been on the, the high of the excitement, 
incredible move of the Spirit of God with signs and wonders on the day of Pentecost, the establishment of the church, the singing and meeting together and rejoicing together, and now all of a sudden Satan gives this shot across the bow. And uh, I want you to picture what was right in front of them in the, in the chaos of that time. And the first principle that I want to mention is in the midst of persecution, we need to focus on what is not seen, not what is seen. That's what we've been singing a lot about today. Focus on what is not seen, not what is seen. And I think the Lord gave me a visible reminder of that in a small way. Again, it's, you know, a small fracture is not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. People have far worse crosses to bear, believe me. But still, it's amazing how painful one little broken bone uh, can be. I never appreciated my pinky finger like I have the last few days. Uh, in fact, I confess I forgot you were there, but now I know you're there and it hurts. Um, but uh, it's pretty easy to focus on the throbbing, to focus on the inconvenience, to focus on you know, the bandage, to focus on what I see. And that's just a metaphor for how to handle suffering in general and persecution in general. Focus on what is not seen, not what is seen. It's kind of a tongue twister, isn't it? <laughs> but let's say it together. Let me say it once and then you say it with me. Focus on what is not seen, not what is seen. Ready? Focus on what is not seen, not what is seen. That's the principle. So what was right in front of Peter and John? Well, they were looking at angry, powerful, jealous leaders. They were facing physical attacks. And they found themselves in a jail cell. Now, those of us in this room haven't suffered to that point yet I, that I know of. Maybe some of you have done mission work or served the Lord in certain capacities where maybe you have been imprisoned. I don't know. But there are people all around the world today that are sitting in a jail cell for the cause of Christ. And this is what Peter and John were facing. Focus on what is not seen, not what is seen. So what was not seen? You know, what, what did they need to focus on? They needed to focus on the spiritual power. They knew that these men had been with Jesus. They knew that Jesus had resurrection power. He had the ability to raise people from the dead. They knew that spiritual power was on their side. And that's why Paul would later declare in his letter to the Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And he was, goes on to say, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood, there's just a metonym for what you can see and feel and touch, right? So this physical ailment that I'm experiencing is not what it's about. There's an unseen battle that we need to keep fixated on. Our battle is not against what we see. Um, but we battle against principalities, powers, the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and heavenly places. And just as that's our unseen enemy, we need to never forget that we have an unseen advocate who's already won the battle. Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, meaning fleshly, meaning physical, able to be touched and seen, but they're mighty in God for pulling down a strongholds, for the weapons... Uh, of our warfare, mighty in God. Mighty in God. That's the spiritual 
power. In the context of 2 Corinthians, Paul's talking about all kinds of attacks on his character and his apostleship and his authority. And he admitted that he walked in the flesh. In other words, he was only human, but he realized that he didn't operate or function according to the flesh. And he was contrasting living in the world with no spiritual perspective and no hope versus living in the world but not being of the world. He knew that carnal weapons like intimidation, manipulation, trickery, double talk, rumor, hypocritical behavior, all that's ineffective in a spiritual unseen warfare. Reliance on the working of God, however, results in spiritual victories. So focus on what is not seen, not what is seen. So let's pick up the story where we left off. I think we left off in verse uh, 13. Now, when they had, when they saw the, uh, no, we read that, they realized they had been with Jesus. Now, verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. I love the way Luke puts that. It's like, I mean, the guy was lame for 40 years. Now he's walking around doing, you know, cartwheels. What are you going to do? But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, what should, what shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. And then verse 17, But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. I mean, I don't understand that reaction. Just like I don't understand the reaction of pagan, humanistic culture, cultural leaders today. I mean, why wouldn't these Jewish leaders call an assembly and line up all the lame people? Come one, come all. Look, we've just solved the problem. No, no. They, you know, here a guy gets healed, and they command them, don't ever do that again. I mean, we, we can't have people being healed. So they called them in and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. So the second principle, I think, to remember is that persecution can be relentless and and uh, chaotically so? I mean, just irrationally so, right? I mean, why would why would these people continue to persecute when the opposite has the, the best uh, you know results? It just it's counterintuitive, in other words, and yet persecution isn't rational and, and it's not. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't quit. It can be relentless. David understood this uh, a thousand years before Christ when he wrote in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? You ever feel like that? I mean, that's what it can feel like when you're facing an extended season of suffering or, or persecution. And then... The third principle that I take from this is that our first priority is always God's Word. When we face persecution, we need to remember this. And a lot of churches, I think, drop the ball on this over the last two years. But our number one priority in the midst of persecution has always got to be God's Word. God's Word trumps everything else. God's Word trumps government. God's Word trumps peer pressure. We've all been there. God's word trumps tradition. God's word trumps society and culture. And one that a lot of people forgot 
couple of years ago, God's word trumps Trump, too. Okay. Let's listen to how Peter and John uh, responded. Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Uh, you decide whatever you want. But for our part, we cannot but speak the things we have seen and heard. We, we can't stop talking about it. Uh, you can command us not to, but we're not going to do it. In the next chapter, Peter and John were put in prison yet again. And they say, uh, uh, we ought to obey God rather than men. One of the scribes, one of the leaders, Gamaliel, when they were really puzzled, what do we do with these guys? You know, we can't string them up because that'll cause a riot. If you read on in chapter 5, that's what they talk about. We can't really, you know, kill them, but they're just steadfastly refusing, you know. It's kind of like when you refuse to put on a mask. I mean, the, the little 18-year-old store manager, what are they going to do? I mean, they're kind of dumbfounded. I mean, they, I guess theoretically they could call the police, but they're not going to want that scene, right? But that's kind of the, the, the sense you get here. They didn't know what to do. So Gamaliel was one of the leaders, and they, uh, you know, he spoke up, and he uh, gave advice, and here's what he said. Now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, then it'll come to nothing. And he gave a couple of examples of how this had happened before and it fizzled out. But he said, but if it is of God, you can't do anything about it anyway. So tread lightly is what his advice was. So even Gamaliel understood the principle that our first priority should always be God's word. Uh, this has always been true throughout human history. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Nebuchadnezzar said, if you don't worship me, or this image of me, you're going to be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, a fiery furnace. What did they say? Well, okay, if that's the case, then we believe our God is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. In other words, we believe God is capable but even if he does, if it's not his plan, for whatever reason he wants us to die for our faith, okay, that he's still God. <laughs> and we're not going to worship you. Uh, Paul, in the early days of his ministry, Paul, the one who had persecuted Christians, we're going to be introduced to him in not too long from now in our study of Acts. Um, after he became a Christian, spent 14 years studying and preparing for ministry, then he launched his first missionary journey. Right after that, he writes his first letter, first of 13 in 49 AD. And he says this, For do I now persuade men or God? Am I trying to please men? He said, if I still pleased men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. <laughs> so you can't do both. You can't please government, please men, please your neighbor, and serve God at the same time. I mean, you can follow government as long as it's not a tyrannical government and it's not as long as it's not overstepping government has a purpose in god's divine plan and that purpose is to bless good and punish evil but it's not to impose uh, restrictions on god's church and then the next principle a fourth principle to keep in mind when facing persecution is the best response to persecution is to give god the glory and just praise him in the midst of it so if we skip ahead to chapter 5 
uh, we pick up the story after Gamaliel gave his advice. And, and uh, here's what we read in verse 40. They agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, there's that relentless persecution again, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. So once again, they're out of prison. And how do they respond? Very, very important. Verse 41. They departed from the presence of the council, grumbling and complaining that they broke their hand. No, no. Grumbling and complaining. No, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Praising God. That's how you respond to suffering. Now, that's not easy. Believe me. Nobody knows that more than I do, than I. Now, this is Peter, of course, is the one experiencing this along with John. I want you to fast forward 30 years later. So now we're in the mid-60s. A lot has happened in the church. Saul got saved, became Paul. He's writing his letters, taking his missionary journeys. Um, People have been martyred. Stephen's been martyred. James has been martyred. Um, And Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes his own epistle. Of course, Acts is Luke writing. But this is Peter. And he would look back on this experience that he had in the early days of the Jerusalem church and under the inspiration of the Spirit, write these words. He would say, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. Peter understood his whole ministry from the the get-go in the day of Pentecost was suffering for the cause of Christ. And yet he said, when that happens, we need to rejoice. It's all about perspective. It's focusing on what is not seen, not what is seen. It's about perspective. Some of you may know the name Chris Christian. He was a prolific singer and songwriter from Abilene, Texas. And his songs have been recorded by Elvis Presley, Olivia Newton-John, Natalie Cole, Sheena Easton, the Pointer Sisters, Al Jarreau, the Carpenters, Amy Grant, Patty Austin, Dionne Warwick, the group America, the Imperials, B.J. Thomas, Dan Peake, Sandy Patty, and many others. Yeah, he was prolific. He must have been thinking, I, uh, I think, of Peter and John's experience in Acts 4 and 5 when he appended the words to this popular Christian song written by Chris Christian. When you're up against a struggle that shatters all your dreams and your hopes have been cruelly crushed by Satan's manifested schemes, and you feel the urge within you to submit to earthly fears, don't let the faith you're standing in seem to disappear. Praise the Lord. He can work through those who praise Him. Praise the Lord, for our God inhabits praise. Praise the Lord for the chains that seem to bind you serve only to remind you that they drop powerless behind you when you praise Him. And one final principle as the story ends in Acts chapter 5, and that is never give in to Satan's intimidation. Never give in to Satan's intimidation. Notice how Luke ends chapter 5. And again, there's a lot in there. We skipped over the Ananias and Sapphira story, but there's a lot in there that is part of this season of persecution. And it doesn't slow down, by the way. But in in Acts chapter 5, verse 42, Luke tells us 
and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They didn't shut down on Easter Sunday because the government said you can't worship. <laughs> they didn't cease preaching. They did just they'd been in prison twice. They'd been beaten. And yet we cannot but teach the word of God. And Luke makes it clear that that's what went on happening. They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Peter himself ends his first letter, 1 Peter in chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, with these words, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That little phrase jumps off the page at me. After you have suffered a while. Jesus made it clear in the upper room, in this world we will have tribulation. Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And we better know how to respond to it biblically. So how do we power through persecution? Well, these are just some principles that I think are biblical and help us guide us through times of suffering. Focus on what is not seen, not what is seen. Remember that persecution can be relentless. Our first priority always has to be God's word. Praise him in the midst of persecution and never give in to Satan's intimidation. So what's the takeaway? Well, the takeaway is in the title of the message. Power through persecution. Push past it, as that text said to me. Focus on what is not seen. And we can do it by God's grace. We can do it. Let's pray together. Father, we, we do thank you uh, this morning just for these reminders from so many years ago, and yet we feel a, a commonality with the early church. Even in America, where we've been blessed to have so much freedom, we can begin to relate, and only just to begin, because our brothers and sisters of Christ throughout the church age have suffered far more than we have faced so far in this country, and we thank you for that. We pray that you prepare our hearts for what comes next, what may be lurking around the corner. Help us to sense the urgency of the hour, to be diligent, to proclaim the gospel, set a good example, and look up and be watchful, because the window may be closing when we have the freedom to do that. Father, I pray if there's one here today that doesn't know you, that today in simple childlike faith, they would reach out and trust in your Son and our Savior, who died and rose again for our sins, so that they can have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. As Peter said, it's only in his name. And it's in that precious name that we pray. Amen.